Chapter Nine of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Nine: The Consequences of a Deviation. Barbicane had now no fear of the issue of the journey, at least as far as the projectile's impulsive force was concerned. Its own speed would carry it beyond the neutral line. It would certainly not return to earth. It would certainly not remain motionless on the line of attraction. One single hypothesis remained to be realized, the arrival of the projectile at its destination by the action of the lunar attraction. It was, in reality, a fall of 8,296 leagues on an orb, it is true, where weight could only be reckoned at one-sixth of the terrestrial weight. A formidable fall, nevertheless, and one against which every precaution must be taken without delay. These precautions were of two sorts, some to deaden the shock when the projectile should touch the lunar soil, others to delay the fall and consequently make it less violent. To deaden the shock, it was a pity that Barbicane was no longer able to employ the means which had so ably weakened the shock at departure, that is to say, by water used as springs and the partition breaks. The partitions still existed, but water failed, for they could not use their reserve, which was precious, in case during the first days the liquid element should be found wanting on lunar soil and indeed this reserve would have been quite insufficient for a spring. The layer of water stored in the projectile at their departure, and on which the waterproof disk lay, occupied no less than three feet in depth, and spread over a surface of not less than fifty-four square feet. Besides, the cistern did not contain one-fifth part of it. They must therefore give up this efficient means of deadening the shock of arrival." Happily, Barbicane, not content with employing water, had furnished the movable disc with strong spring plugs, destined to lessen the shock against the base after the breaking of the horizontal partitions. These plugs still existed, they had only to readjust them and replace the movable disc. Every piece, easy to handle, as their weight was now scarcely felt, was quickly mounted. The different pieces were fitted without trouble, it being only a matter of bolts and screws. Tools were not wanting, and soon the reinstated disc lay on its steel plugs, like a table on its legs. One inconvenience resulted from the replacing of the disc. The lower window was blocked up. Thus it was impossible for the travellers to observe the moon from that opening, while they were being precipitated perpendicularly upon her but they were obliged to give it up. Even by the side openings they could still see vast lunar regions, as an aeronaut sees the earth from his car. This replacing of the disc was at least an hour's work. It was past twelve when all preparations were finished. Barbicane took fresh observations on the inclination of the projectile, but to his annoyance it had not turned over sufficiently for its fall. It seemed to take a curve parallel to the lunar disk. The orb of night shone splendidly into space, while opposite, the orb of day blazed with fire. 
their situation began to make them uneasy. "'Are we reaching our destination?' said Nicholl. "'Let us act as if we were about reaching it,' replied Barbicane. "'You are sceptical,' retorted Michel Ardin. "'We shall arrive, and that, too, quicker than we like.' This answer brought Barbicane back to his preparations, and he occupied himself with placing the contrivances intended to break their descent. We may remember the scene of the meeting held at Tampa Town, in Florida, when Captain Nicholl came forward as Barbicane's enemy and Michel Ardan's adversary. To Captain Nicholl's maintaining that the projectile would smash like glass, Michel replied that he would break their fall by means of rockets properly placed. Thus powerful fireworks, taking their starting point from the base and bursting outside, could, by producing a recoil, check to a certain degree the projectile's speed. These rockets were to burn in space, it is true, but oxygen would not fail them, for they could supply themselves with it, like the lunar volcanoes, the burning of which has never yet been stopped by the want of atmosphere round the moon. Barbicane had accordingly supplied himself with these fireworks, enclosed in little steel guns, which could be screwed on to the base of the projectile. Inside, these guns were flush with the bottom. Outside, they protruded about eighteen inches. There were twenty of them. An opening left in the disc allowed them to light the match with which each was provided. All the effect was felt outside. Their burning mixture had been already rammed into each gun. They had, then, nothing to do but to raise the metallic buffers fixed in the base and replace them by the guns, which fitted closely in their places. This new work was finished about three o'clock, and after taking all these precautions, there remained but to wait. But the projectile was perceptibly nearing the moon, and evidently succumbed to her influence to a certain degree, though its own velocity also drew it in an oblique direction. From these conflicting influences resulted a line which might become a tangent. But it was certain that the projectile would not fall directly on the moon, for its lower part, by reason of its weight, ought to be turned towards her. Barbicane's uneasiness increased as he saw his projectile resist the influence of gravitation. The unknown was opening before him, the unknown in interplanetary space. The man of science thought he had foreseen the only three hypotheses possible. The return to the earth, the return to the moon, or stagnation on the neutral line. And here a fourth hypothesis, big with all the terrors of the infinite, surged up inopportunely. To face it without flinching, one must be a resolute savant like Barbicane, a phlegmatic being like Nicol, or an audacious adventurer like Michel Ardan. Conversation was started upon this subject. Other men would have considered the question from a practical point of view. They would have asked themselves whither their projectile carriage was carrying them, not so with these, they sought for the cause which produced this effect. "'So we have become diverted from our route,' said Michel. "'But why?' "'I very much fear,' answered Nicholl, "'that, in spite of all precautions taken, the Columbiad was not fairly pointed. An error, however small, 
would be enough to throw us out of the moon's attraction. "'Then they must have aimed badly?' asked Michelle. "'I do not think so,' replied Barbicane. "'The perpendicularity of the gun was exact, its direction to the zenith of the spot incontestable, and the moon passing to the zenith of the spot, we ought to reach it at the full. There is another reason, but it escapes me.' "'Are we not arriving too late?' asked Nicholl. "'Too late?' said Barbicane. "'Yes,' continued Nicholl. "'The Cambridge Observatory's note says that the transit ought to be accomplished in ninety-seven hours, thirteen minutes, and twenty seconds, which means to say that sooner the moon will not be at the point indicated, and that later it will have passed it.' "'True,' replied Barbicane. But we started the first of December at thirteen minutes and twenty-five seconds to eleven at night, and we ought to arrive on the fifth at midnight, at the exact moment when the moon would be full, and we are now at the fifth of December. It is now half-past three in the evening. Half-past eight ought to see us at the end of our journey. Why do we not arrive? Might it not be an excess of speed? answered Nicholl for we know now that its initial velocity was greater than they supposed. "'No, a hundred times, no,' replied Barbicane. "'An excess of speed, if the direction of the projectile had been right, would not have prevented us reaching the moon. No, there has been a deviation. We have been turned out of our course.' "'By whom? By what?' asked Nicholl. "'I cannot say,' replied Barbicane. "'Very well, then, Barbicane,' said Michel. "'Do you wish to know my opinion on the subject of finding out this deviation?' "'Speak.' "'I would not give half a dollar to know it. That we have deviated is a fact. Where we are going to matters little. We shall soon see. Since we are being borne along in space, we shall end by falling into some centre of attraction or other.' Michel Ardan's indifference did not content Barbicane. Not that he was uneasy about the future, but he wanted to know at any cost why his projectile had deviated. But the projectile continued its course sideways to the moon, and with it the mass of things thrown out. Barbicane could even prove, by the elevations which served as landmarks upon the moon, which was only two thousand leagues distant, that its speed was becoming uniform, fresh proof that there was no fall. Its impulsive force still prevailed over the lunar attraction, but the projectile's course was certainly bringing it nearer to the moon, and they might hope that at a nearer point the weight, predominating, would cause a decided fall. The three friends, having nothing better to do, continued their observations but they could not yet determine the topographical position of the satellite. Every relief was leveled under the reflection of the solar rays. They watched thus through the side windows until eight o'clock at night. The moon had then grown so large in their eyes that it filled half of the firmament. The sun on one side, and the orb of night on the other, flooded the projectile with light. At that moment Barbicane thought he could estimate the distance which separated them from their aim at no more than seven hundred leagues. 
the speed of the projectile seemed to him to be more than two hundred yards, or about one hundred seventy leagues an hour. Under the centripetal force, the base of the projectile tended towards the moon, but the centrifugal still prevailed, and it was probable that its rectilineal course would be changed to a curve of some sort, the nature of which they could not at present determine. Barbicane was still seeking the solution of his insoluble problem. Hours passed without any result. The projectile was evidently nearing the moon, but it was also evident that it would never reach her. As to the nearest distance at which it would pass her, that would be the result of the two forces, attraction and repulsion, affecting its motion. "'I ask but one thing,' said Michel, "'that we may pass near enough to penetrate her secrets.' "'Cursed be the thing that has caused our projectile to deviate from its course,' cried Nicholl. And, as if a light had suddenly broken in upon his mind, Barbicane answered, "'Then curse be the meteor which crossed our path.' "'What?' said Michel Ardin. "'What do you mean?' exclaimed Nicholl. "'I mean,' said Barbicane, in a decided tone, "'I mean that our deviation is owing solely to our meeting with this erring body.' "'But it did not even brush us as it passed,' said Michel. "'What does that matter? Its mass, compared to that of our projectile, was enormous, and its attraction was enough to influence our course.' "'So little?' cried Nicholl. "'Yes, Nicholl, but however little it might be,' replied Barbicane, "'in a distance of eighty-four thousand leagues, it wanted no more to make us miss the moon.'" End of chapter Chapter 10 of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 10 The Observers of the Moon Barbicane had evidently hit upon the only plausible reason of this deviation. However slight it might have been, it had sufficed to modify the course of the projectile. It was a fatality. The bold attempt had miscarried by a fortuitous circumstance, and unless by some exceptional event they could now never reach the moon's disk. Would they pass near enough to be able to solve certain physical and geological questions until then insoluble? This was the question, and the only one, which occupied the minds of these bold travellers. As to the fate in store for themselves, they did not even dream of it. What would become of them amid these infinite solitudes, these who would soon want air? A few more days, and they would fall stifled in this wandering projectile. But some days to these intrepid fellows was a century and they devoted all their time to observe that moon which they no longer hoped to reach. The distance which then separated the projectile from the satellite was estimated at about two hundred leagues. Under these conditions, as regards the visibility of the details of the disk, 
the travellers were farther from the moon than are the inhabitants of the earth with their powerful telescopes indeed we know that the instrument mounted by lord ross at parsonstown which magnifies sixty-five hundred times brings the moon to within an apparent distance of sixteen leagues and more than that with the powerful one set up at long's peak the orb of night magnified forty-eight thousand times is brought to within less than two leagues and objects having a diameter of thirty feet are seen very distinctly so that at this distance the topographical details of the moon observed without glasses could not be determined with precision the eye caught the vast outline of those immense depressions inappropriately called seas but they could not recognize their nature the prominence of the mountains disappeared under the splendid irradiation produced by the reflection of the solar rays the eye dazzled as if it was leaning over a bath of molten silver turned from it involuntarily but the oblong form of the orb was quite clear it appeared like a gigantic egg with the small end turned towards the earth indeed the moon liquid and pliable in the first days of its formation was originally a perfect sphere but being soon drawn within the attraction of the earth it became elongated under the influence of gravitation in becoming a satellite she lost her native purity of form her centre of gravity was in advance of the centre of her figure and from this fact some savants draw the conclusion that the air and water had taken refuge on the opposite surface of the moon which is never seen from the earth this alteration in the primitive form of the satellite was only perceptible for a few moments the distance of the projectile from the moon diminished very rapidly under its speed though that was much less than its initial velocity but eight or nine times greater than that which propels our express trains the oblique course of the projectile from its very obliquity gave michel ardin some hopes of striking the lunar disk at some point or other he could not think that they would never reach it no he could not believe it and this opinion he often repeated but barbicane who was a better judge always answered him with merciless logic no michel no we can only reach the moon by a fall and we are not falling the centripetal force keeps us under the moon's influence but the centrifugal force draws us irresistibly away from it this was said in a tone which quenched michel ardan's last hope the portion of the moon which the projectile was nearing was the northern hemisphere that which the selenographic maps place below for these maps are generally drawn after the outline given by the glasses and we know that they reverse the objects such was the mappa selenographica of bohr and merdler which barbicane consulted this northern hemisphere presented vast plains dotted with isolated mountains at midnight the moon was full at that precise moment the travellers should have alighted upon it if the mischievous meteor had not diverted their course the orb was exactly in the condition determined by the cambridge observatory it was mathematically at its perigee and at the zenith of the twenty-eighth parallel 
an observer placed at the bottom of the enormous columbiad, pointed perpendicularly to the horizon, would have framed the moon in the mouth of the gun. A straight line drawn through the axis of the piece would have passed through the centre of the orb of night. It is needless to say that during the night of the 5th through the 6th of December, the travellers took not an instant's rest. Could they close their eyes when so near this new world? No. All their feelings were concentrated in one single thought. See? Representatives of the earth, of humanity, past and present, all centred in them. It is through their eyes that the human race look at these lunar regions, and penetrate the secrets of their satellite. A strange emotion filled their hearts as they went from one window to the other. Their observations, reproduced by Barbicane, were rigidly determined. To take them, they had glasses. To correct them, maps. As regards the optical instruments at their disposal, they had excellent marine glasses specially constructed for this journey. They possessed magnifying powers of one hundred. They would thus have brought the moon to within a distance, apparent, of less than two thousand leagues from the earth, but then at a distance which for three hours in the morning did not exceed sixty-five miles, and in a medium free from all atmospheric disturbances, these instruments could reduce the lunar surface to within less than fifteen hundred yards. End of chapter. Chapter 11 of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 11 Fancy and Reality "'Have you ever seen the moon?' asked a professor, ironically, of one of his pupils. "'No, sir,' replied the pupil, still more ironically. "'But I must say I have heard it spoken of.' In one sense, the pupil's witty answer might be given by a large majority of sublunary beings. How many people have heard speak of the moon who have never seen it, at least through a glass or a telescope?' How many have never examined the map of their satellite? In looking at a selenographic map, one peculiarity strikes us. Contrary to the arrangement followed for that of the Earth and Mars, the continents occupy more particularly the southern hemisphere of the lunar globe. These continents do not show such decided, clear, and regular boundary lines as South America, Africa, and the Indian Peninsula. Their angular, capricious, and deeply indented coasts are rich in gulfs and peninsulas. They remind one of the confusion in the islands of the Sound, where the land is excessively indented. If navigation ever existed on the surface of the moon, it must have been wonderfully difficult and dangerous, and we may well pity the Selenite sailors and hydrographers. The former, when they came upon these perilous coasts, the latter when they took the soundings of its stormy banks. We may also notice that, on the lunar sphere, the South Pole is much more continental than the North Pole. On the latter, 
there is but one slight strip of land separated from other continents by vast seas. Towards the south, continents clothe almost the whole of the hemisphere. It is even possible that the Selenites have already planted the flag on one of their poles, whilst Franklin, Ross, Kane, Dumont d'Urville, and Lambert have never yet been able to attain that unknown point of the terrestrial globe. As to islands, they are numerous on the surface of the moon, nearly all oblong or circular, and as if traced with the compass, they seem to form one vast archipelago, equal to that charming group lying between Greece and Asia Minor, and which mythology in ancient times adorned with most graceful legends. Involuntarily the names of Naxos, Tenedos, and Carpathos rise before the mind, and we seek vainly for Ulysses' vessel or the clipper of the Argonauts. So at least it was in Michel Ardin's eyes. To him it was a Grecian archipelago that he saw on the map. To the eyes of his matter-of-fact companions, the aspect of these coasts recalled rather the parceled-out land of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and where the Frenchmen discovered traces of the heroes of fable, these Americans were marking the most favourable points for the establishment of stores in the interests of lunar commerce and industry. After wandering over these vast continents, the eye is attracted by still greater seas. Not only their formation, but their situation and aspect remind one of the terrestrial oceans, but again, as on earth, these seas occupy the greater portion of the globe. But in point of fact, these are not liquid spaces, but plains, the nature of which the travellers hoped soon to determine. Astronomers, we must allow, have graced these pretended seas with at least odd names, which science has respected up to the present time. Michel Ardan was right when he compared this map to a Tondre card, got up by a Scuderi or a Cyrano de Bergerac. Only, said he, it is no longer the sentimental card of the seventeenth century, it is the card of life, very neatly divided into two parts, one feminine, the other masculine, the right hemisphere for woman, the left for man. In speaking thus, Michel made his prosaic companions shrug their shoulders. Barbicane and Nicol looked upon the lunar map from a very different point of view to that of their fantastic friend. Nevertheless, their fantastic friend was a little in the right. Judge for yourselves. In the left hemisphere stretches the Sea of Clouds, where human reason is so often shipwrecked. Not far off lies the Sea of Rains, fed by all the fever of existence. Near this is the Sea of Storms, where man is ever fighting against his passions, which too often gain the victory. Then, worn out by deceit, treasons, infidelity, and the whole body of terrestrial misery, what does he find at the end of his career? That vast sea of humours, barely softened by some drops of the waters from the gulf of dew. Clouds, rain, storms, and humours, does the life of man contain aught but these? And is it not summed up in these four words? The right hemisphere, dedicated to the ladies, encloses smaller seas, 
whose significant names contain every incident of a feminine existence. There is the Sea of Serenity, over which the young girl bends, the Lake of Dreams, reflecting a joyous future, the Sea of Nectar, with its waves of tenderness and breezes of love, the Sea of Fruitfulness, the Sea of Crises, then the Sea of Vapours, whose dimensions are perhaps a little too confined, and lastly that vast sea of tranquillity, in which every false passion, every useless dream, every unsatisfied desire, is at length absorbed, and whose waves emerge peaceably into the lake of death. <laughs> what a strange succession of names! What a singular division of the moon's two hemispheres, joined to one another like man and woman, and forming that sphere of life carried into space. And was not the fantastic Michel right in thus interpreting the fancies of the ancient astronomers? But whilst his imagination thus roved over the seas, his grave companions were considering things more geographically. They were learning this new world by heart. They were measuring angles and diameters. End of chapter. Chapter Twelve of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Twelve, Orographic Details. The course taken by the projectile, as we have before remarked, was bearing it toward the moon's northern hemisphere. The travellers were far from the central point which they would have struck, had their course not been subject to an irremediable deviation. It was past midnight, and Barbicane then estimated the distance at seven hundred fifty miles which was a little greater than the length of the lunar radius, and which would diminish as it advanced nearer to the North Pole. The projectile was not then at the altitude of the equator, but across the tenth parallel, and from that latitude, carefully taken on the map to the pole, Barbicane and his two companions were able to observe the moon under the most favorable conditions. Indeed, by means of glasses— the above-named distance was reduced to little more than fourteen miles. The telescope of the Rocky Mountains brought the moon much nearer, but the terrestrial atmosphere singularly lessened its power. Thus Barbicane, posted in his projectile, with the glasses to his eyes, could seize upon details which were almost imperceptible to earthly observers. "'My friends,' said the President, in a serious voice, I do not know whither we are going. I do not know if we shall ever see the terrestrial globe again. Nevertheless, let us proceed as if our work would one day be useful to our fellow men. Let us keep our minds free from every other consideration. We are astronomers, and this projectile is a room in the Cambridge Observatory, carried into space. Let us make our observations. This said work was begun with great exactness, and they faithfully reproduced the different aspects of the moon, at the different distances which the projectile reached. At the time that the projectile was as high as the tenth parallel, 
north latitude, it seemed rigidly to follow the twentieth degree east longitude. We must here make one important remark with regard to the map by which they were taking observations. In the selenographical maps where, on account of the reversing of the objects by the glasses, the south is above and the north below, it would seem natural that, on account of that inversion, the east should be the left hand and the west to the right. But it is not so. If the map were turned upside down, showing the moon as we see her, the east would be to the left and the west to the right, contrary to that which exists on terrestrial maps. The following is the reason of this anomaly. Observers in the northern hemisphere, say, in Europe, see the moon in the south, according to them. When they take observations, they turn their backs to the north, the reverse position to that which they occupy when they study a terrestrial map. As they turn their backs to the north, the east is on their left and the west to their right. To observers in the southern hemisphere, Patagonia, for example, the moon's west would be quite to their left and the east to their right, as the south is behind them. Such is the reason of the apparent reversing of these two cardinal points, and we must bear it in mind in order to be able to follow President Barbicane's observations. With the help of Boer and Merdler's Mappa Selenographica, the travellers were able at once to recognize that portion of the disk enclosed within the field of their glasses. "'What are we looking at at this moment?' asked Michel at the northern part of the sea of clouds answered barbicane we are too far off to recognize its nature are these plains composed of arid sand as the first astronomer maintained or are they nothing but immense forests according to monsieur warren de la rue's opinion who gives the moon an atmosphere though a very low and a very dense one that we shall know by and by we must affirm nothing until we are in a position to do so this sea of clouds is rather doubtfully marked out upon the maps. It is supposed that these vast plains are strewn with blocks of lava from the neighboring volcanoes on its right, Ptolemy, Perbac, Arzachel. But the projectile was advancing, and sensibly nearing it. Soon there appeared the heights which bound this sea at this northern limit. Before them rose a mountain radiant with beauty, the top of which seemed lost in an eruption of solar rays. "'That is,' asked Michel. "'Copernicus,' replied Barbicane. "'Let us see Copernicus!' This mount, situated in nine degrees north latitude and twenty degrees east longitude, rose to a height of ten thousand six hundred feet above the surface of the moon. It is quite visible from the earth, and astronomers can study it with ease.' particularly during the phase between the last quarter and the new moon, because then the shadows are thrown lengthwise from east to west, allowing them to measure the heights. This Copernicus forms the most important of the radiating system, situated in the southern hemisphere, according to Tycho Brahe. It rises isolated like a gigantic lighthouse on that portion of the Sea of Clouds, which is bounded by the Sea of Tempests, thus lighting by its splendid rays two oceans at a time. It was a sight without an equal, those long luminous trains, 
so dazzling in the full moon, and which, passing the boundary chain on the north, extends to the sea of rains. At one o'clock of the terrestrial morning, the projectile, like a balloon borne into space, overlooked the top of this superb mountain. Barbicane could recognize perfectly its chief features. Copernicus is comprised in the series of ringed mountains of the first order, in the division of great circles. Like Kepler and Aristarchus, which overlooked the ocean of tempests, sometimes it appeared like a brilliant point through the cloudy light, and was taken for a volcano in activity. But it is only an extinct one, like all on that side of the moon. Its circumference showed a diameter of about twenty-two leagues. The glasses discovered traces of stratification produced by successive eruptions, and the neighborhood was strewn with volcanic remains which still choked some of the craters. "'There exist,' said Barbicane, "'several kinds of circles on the surface of the moon, and it is easy to see that Copernicus belongs to the radiating class. If we were nearer, we should see the cones bristling on the inside, which in former times were so many fiery mouths. A curious arrangement, and one without an exception on the lunar disk, is that the interior surface of these circles is the reverse of the exterior, and contrary to the form taken by terrestrial craters. It follows, then, that the general curve of the bottom of these circles gives a sphere of a smaller diameter than that of the moon. "'And why this peculiar disposition?' asked Nicholl. "'We do not know,' replied Barbicane. "'What splendid radiation!' said Michel. "'One could hardly see a finer spectacle, I think.' "'What would you say, then?' replied Barbicane, "'if chance should bear us towards the southern hemisphere.' "'Well, I should say that it was still more beautiful,' retorted Michel Ardin. At this moment the projectile hung perpendicularly over the circle. The circumference of Copernicus formed almost a perfect circle, and its steep escarpments were clearly defined. They could even distinguish a second ringed enclosure. Around spread a grayish plain of a wild aspect, on which every relief was marked in yellow. At the bottom of the circle, as if enclosed in a jewel case, sparkled for one instant two or three eruptive cones, like enormous dazzling gems. Towards the north the escarpments were lowered by a depression which would probably have given access to the interior of the crater. In passing over the surrounding plains Barbicane noted a great number of less important mountains, and among others a little ringed one called Guy Lussac, the breadth of which measured twelve miles. Towards the south the plain was very flat, without one elevation, without one projection. Towards the north, on the contrary, till where it was bounded by the sea of storms, it resembled a liquid surface agitated by a storm, of which the hills and hollows formed a succession of waves suddenly congealed. Over the whole of this, and in all directions, lay the luminous lines, all converging to the summit of Copernicus. The travellers discussed the origin of these strange rays, but they could not determine their nature any more than terrestrial observers. "'But why,' said Nicholl, 
should not these rays be simply spurs of mountains which reflect more vividly the light of the sun? No, replied Barbicane. If it was so, under certain conditions of the moon, these ridges would cast shadows, and they do not cast any. And indeed these rays only appeared when the orb of day was in opposition to the moon, and disappeared as soon as its rays became oblique. "'But how have they endeavoured to explain these lines of light?' asked Michel. "'For I cannot believe that savants would ever be stranded for want of an explanation.' "'Yes,' replied Barbicane. "'Herschel has put forward an opinion, but he did not venture to affirm it.' "'Never mind. What was the opinion?' "'He thought that these rays might be streams of cooled lava, which shone when the sun beat straight upon them.' It may be so, but nothing can be less certain. Besides, if we pass nearer to Tycho, we shall be in a better position to find out the cause of this radiation. Do you know, my friends, what that plane, seen from the height we are at, resembles? said Michel. No, replied Nicholl. Very well. With all those pieces of lava, lengthened like rockets, it resembles an immense game of spillikins, thrown pell-mell. There wants but the hook to pull them out one by one. "'Do be serious,' said Barbicane. "'Well, let us be serious,' replied Michel quietly. "'And instead of spellicans, let us put bones. This plain would then be nothing but an immense cemetery, on which would repose the mortal remains of thousands of extinct generations. Do you prefer that high-flown comparison?' "'One is as good as the other,' retorted Barbicane. "'My word, you are difficult to please,' answered Michel. "'My worthy friend,' continued the matter-of-fact Barbicane, "'it matters but little what it resembles when we do not know what it is.' "'Well answered,' exclaimed Michel. "'That will teach me to reason with savants.' But the projectile continued to advance with almost uniform speed around the lunar disk. The travellers, we may easily imagine, did not dream of taking a moment's rest. Every minute changed the landscape which fled from beneath their gaze. About half-past one o'clock in the morning, they caught a glimpse of the tops of another mountain. Barbicane, consulting his map, recognized Eratosthenes. It was a ringed mountain nine thousand feet high and one of those circles so numerous on this satellite. With regard to this, Barbicane related Kepler's singular opinion on the formation of circles. According to that celebrated mathematician, these crater-like cavities have been dug by the hand of man. "'For what purpose?' asked Nicholl. "'For a very natural one,' replied Barbicane. "'The Selenites might have undertaken these immense works and dug these enormous holes for a refuge and shield from the solar rays which beat upon them during fifteen consecutive days. "'The Selenites are not fools,' said Michel. "'A singular idea,' replied Nicholl. "'But it is probable that Kepler did not know the true dimensions of these circles, for the digging of them would have been the work of giants quite impossible for the Selenites.' "'Why?' "'If weight on the moon's surface is six times less than on the earth,' said Michel. "'But if the Selenites are six times smaller?' 
retorted Nicol. "'And if there are no Selenites,' added Barbicane. This put an end to the discussion. Soon Eratosthenes disappeared under the horizon without the projectile being sufficiently near to allow of close observation. This mountain separated the Apennines from the Carpathians. In the lunar orography they have discerned some chains of mountains which are chiefly distributed over the northern hemisphere. Some, however, occupy certain portions of the southern hemisphere also. About two o'clock in the morning, Barbicane found that they were above the twentieth lunar parallel. The distance of the projectile from the moon was not more than six hundred miles. Barbicane, now perceiving that the projectile was steadily approaching the lunar disk, did not despair, if of reaching her, at least of discovering the secrets of her configuration. End of chapter Chapter Thirteen of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Thirteen Lunar Landscapes. At half-past two in the morning the projectile was over the thirteenth lunar parallel and at the effective distance of five hundred miles, reduced by the glasses to five. It still seemed impossible, however, that it could ever touch any part of the disk. Its mode of speed, comparatively so moderate, was inexplicable to President Barbicane. At that distance from the moon it must have been considerable to enable it to bear up against her attraction. Here was a phenomenon the cause of which escaped them again. Besides, time failed them to investigate the cause. All lunar relief was defiling under the eyes of the travellers, and they would not lose a single detail. Under the glasses the disk appeared at the distance of five miles. What would an aeronaut, born to this distance from the earth, distinguish on its surface? We cannot say, since the greatest ascension has not been more than 25,000 feet. This, however, is an exact description of what Barbicane and his companions saw at this height. Large patches of different colors appeared on the disk. Selenographers are not agreed upon the nature of these colors. There are several, and rather vividly marked. Julius Schmidt pretends that, if the terrestrial oceans were dried up, a selenite observer could not distinguish on the globe a greater diversity of shades between the oceans and the continental plains than those on the moon present to a terrestrial observer. According to him, the color common to the vast plains known by the names of seas is a dark gray mixed with green and brown. Some of the large craters present the same appearance. Barbicane knew this opinion of the German selenographer, an opinion shared by Bohr and Merdler. Observation has proved that Wright was on their side, and not on that of some astronomers who admit the existence of only grey on the moon's surface. In some parts green was very distinct, such as springs, according to Julius Schmidt, from the seas of serenity and humours. 
Barbicane also noticed large craters, without any interior cones, which shed a bluish tint similar to the reflection of a sheet of steel freshly polished. These colors belonged really to the lunar disk, and did not result, as some astronomers say, either from the imperfection in the objective of the glasses, or from the interposition of the terrestrial atmosphere. Not a doubt existed in Barbicane's mind with regard to it, as he observed it through space, and so could not commit any optical error. He considered the establishment of this fact as an acquisition to science. Now were these shades of green, belonging to tropical vegetation, kept up by a low, dense atmosphere? He could not yet say. Farther on he noticed a reddish tint quite defined. The same shade had before been observed at the bottom of an isolated enclosure, known by the name of Lichtenberg's Circle, which is situated near the Hercynian Mountains, on the borders of the moon. But they could not tell the nature of it. They were not more fortunate with regard to another peculiarity of the disk, for they could not decide upon the cause of it. Michel Ardin was watching near the President when he noticed long white lines, vividly lighted up by the direct rays of the sun. It was a succession of luminous furrows, very different from the radiation of Copernicus not long before. They ran parallel with each other. Michel, with his usual readiness, hastened to explain, "'Look there! Cultivated fields!' "'Cultivated fields!' replied Nicholl, shrugging his shoulders. "'Ploughed at all events,' retorted Michel Ardin. "'But what labourers those Selenites must be, and what gigantic oxen they must harness to their plough to cut such furrows!' "'They are not furrows,' said Barbicane. "'They are rifts.' "'Rifts? Stuff!' replied Michel mildly. "'But what do you mean by rifts in the scientific world?' Barbicane immediately enlightened his companion as to what he knew about lunar rifts. He knew that they were a kind of furrow found on every part of the disk which was not mountainous, that these furrows, generally isolated, measured from four hundred to five hundred leagues in length, that their breadth varied from one thousand to fifteen hundred yards, and that their borders were strictly parallel. But he knew nothing more either of their formation or their nature. Barbicane, through his glasses, observed these rifts with great attention. He noticed that their borders were formed of steep declivities. They were long, parallel ramparts, and with some small amount of imagination he might have admitted the existence of long lines of fortifications raised by Selenite engineers. Of these different rifts some were perfectly straight, as if cut by a line. Others were slightly curved though still keeping their borders parallel. Some crossed each other, some cut through craters. Here they wound through ordinary cavities, such as Posidonius or Potavius. There they wound through the seas, such as the Sea of Serenity. These natural accidents naturally excited the imaginations of these terrestrial astronomers. The first observations had not discovered these rifts. Neither Hervelius, Cassim, Lahir, nor Herschel seemed to have known them. It was Schroeter who, in 1789, first drew attention to them. Others followed who studied them, 
as Pastorf, Grütheisen, Burr, and Merdler. At this time their number amounts to seventy, but, if they have been counted, their nature has not yet been determined. They are certainly not fortifications, any more than they are the ancient beds of dried-up rivers. For, on one side, the waters, so slight on the moon's surface, could never have worn such drains for themselves, and, on the other, they often cross craters of great elevation. We must, however, allow that Michel Ardin had an idea, and that, without knowing it, he coincided in that respect with Julius Schmidt. "'Why,' said he, "'should not these unaccountable appearances be simply phenomena of vegetation?' "'What do you mean?' asked Barbicane quickly. "'Ah, do not excite yourself, my worthy President,' replied Michel. "'Might it not be possible that the dark lines forming that bastion were rows of trees regularly placed?' "'You stick to your vegetation, then,' said Barbicane. "'I like,' retorted Michel Ardin, "'to explain what you savants cannot explain.' At least my hypothesis has the advantage of indicating why these rifts disappear, or seem to disappear, at certain seasons. And for what reason? For the reason that the trees become invisible when they lose their leaves, and visible when they regain them. Your explanation is ingenious, my dear companion, replied Barbicane, but inadmissible. Why? because, so to speak, there are no seasons on the moon's surface, and that, consequently, the phenomena of vegetation of which you speak cannot occur. Indeed, the slight obliquity of the lunar axis keeps the sun at an almost equal height in every latitude. Above the equatorial regions, the radiant orb almost invariably occupies the zenith, and does not pass the limits of the horizon in the polar regions. Thus, according to each region, there reigns a perpetual winter, spring, summer, or autumn, as in the planet Jupiter, whose axis is but little inclined upon its orbit. What origin do they attribute to these rifts? That is a question difficult to solve. They are certainly anterior to the formation of craters and circles, for several have introduced themselves by breaking through their circular ramparts. Thus it may be that, contemporary with the latter geological epochs, they are due to the expansion of natural forces. But the projectile had now attained the fortieth degree of lunar latitude, at a distance not exceeding four hundred miles. Through the glasses, objects appeared to be only four miles distant. At this point, under their feet, rose Mount Helicon, fifteen hundred twenty feet high, and round about the left rose moderate elevations, enclosing a small portion of the Sea of Rains, under the name of the Gulf of Iris. The terrestrial atmosphere would have to be one hundred and seventy times more transparent than it is, to allow astronomers to make perfect observations on the moon's surface, but in the void in which the projectile floated, no fluid interposed itself between the eye of the observer and the object observed. And more, Barbicane found himself carried to a greater distance than the most powerful telescopes had ever done before, either that of Lord Ross 
or that of the Rocky Mountains. He was therefore under extremely favourable conditions for solving that great question of the habitability of the moon. But the solution still escaped him. He could distinguish nothing but desert beds, immense plains, and towards the north, arid mountains. Not a work betrayed the hand of man, not a ruin marked his course, not a group of animals was to be seen indicating life, even in an inferior degree. In no part was there life, in no part was there an appearance of vegetation. Of the three kingdoms which share the terrestrial globe between them, one alone was represented on the lunar, and that the mineral. "'Ah, indeed!' said Michel Ardin, a little out of countenance. "'Then you see no one?' "'No,' answered Nicol. "'Up to this time not a man, not an animal, not a tree. After all, whether the atmosphere has taken refuge at the bottom of cavities, in the midst of the circles, or even on the opposite face of the moon, we cannot decide. Besides,' added Barbicane, even to the most piercing eye a man cannot be distinguished farther than three and a half miles off, so that, if there are any selenites, they can see our projectile, but we cannot see them. Towards four in the morning, at the height of the fiftieth parallel, the distance was reduced to three hundred miles. To the left ran a line of mountains capriciously shaped, lying in the full light, to the right, on the contrary, lay a black hollow, resembling a vast well, unfathomable and gloomy, drilled into the lunar soil. This hole was the Black Lake. It was Pluto, a deep circle which can be conveniently studied from the earth, between the last quarter and the new moon, when the shadows fall from west to east. This black color is rarely met with on the surface of the satellite as yet it has only been recognized in the depths of the circle of Endymion, to the east of the cold sea, in the northern hemisphere, and at the bottom of Grimaldi's circle, on the equator, towards the eastern border of the orb. Pluto is an annular mountain, situated in 51 degrees north latitude, and 9 degrees east longitude. Its circuit is 47 miles long and 32 broad. Barbicane regretted that they were not passing directly above this vast opening. There was an abyss to fathom, perhaps some mysterious phenomenon to surprise, but the projectile's course could not be altered. They must rigidly submit. They could not guide a balloon, still less a projectile, when once enclosed within its walls. Toward five in the morning the northern limits of the Sea of Rains was at length passed, the mountains of Condamine and Fontenelle remained, one on the right, the other on the left. That part of the disk beginning with sixty degrees was becoming quite mountainous. The glasses brought them to within two miles, less than that separating the summit of Mont Blanc from the level of the sea. The whole region was bristling with spikes and circles. Towards the sixty degrees, Philolaus stood prominent at a height of 5,550 feet with its elliptical crater, and seen from this distance, the disk showed a very fantastical appearance, 
landscapes were presented to the eye under very different conditions from those on the earth, and also very inferior to them. The moon having no atmosphere, the consequences arising from the absence of this gaseous envelope have already been shown. No twilight on her surface, night following day and day following night, with the suddenness of a lamp which is extinguished or lighted amidst profound darkness. No transition from cold to heat, the temperature falling in an instant from boiling point to the cold of space. Another consequence of this want of air is that absolute darkness reigns where the sun's rays do not penetrate. That which on earth is called diffusion of light, that luminous matter which the air holds in suspension, which creates the twilight and the daybreak, which produces the umbre and the penumbre, and all the magic of chariot oscuro, does not exist on the moon. Hence the harshness of contrasts, which only admit of two colors, black and white. If a selenite were to shade his eyes from the sun's rays, the sky would seem absolutely black, and the stars would shine to him as on the darkest night. Judge of the impression produced on Barbicane and his two friends by this strange scene. Their eyes were confused. They could no longer grasp the respective distances of the different planes. A lunar landscape without the softening of the phenomena of Cheria Oscuro could not be rendered by an earthly landscape painter. It would be spots of ink on a white page, nothing more. This aspect was not altered even when the projectile, at the height of eighty degrees, was only separated from the moon by a distance of fifty miles, nor even when, at five in the morning, it passed at less than twenty-five miles from the mountain of Gioja, a distance reduced by the glasses to a quarter of a mile. It seemed as if the moon might be touched by the hand. It seemed impossible that, before long, the projectile would not strike her, if only at the North Pole, the brilliant arch of which was so distinctly visible on the black sky. Michel Ardin wanted to open one of the scuttles and throw himself onto the moon's surface. A very useless attempt, for if the projectile could not attain any point whatever of the satellite, Michel, carried along by its motion, could not attain it either. At that moment, at six o'clock, the lunar pole appeared. The disk only presented to the traveller's gaze one half brilliantly lit up, whilst the other disappeared in the darkness. Suddenly the projectile passed the line of demarcation between intense light and absolute darkness, and was plunged in profound night. End of chapter Chapter 14 of Round the Moon This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne Chapter 14 The Night of 354 Hours and a Half at the moment when this phenomenon took place so rapidly, the projectile was skirting the moon's north pole at less than twenty-five miles' distance. 
some seconds had sufficed to plunge it into the absolute darkness of space. The transition was so sudden, without shade, without gradation of light, without attenuation of the luminous waves, that the orb seemed to have been extinguished by a powerful blow. "'Melted! Disappeared!' Michel Ardin exclaimed aghast. Indeed, there was neither reflection nor shadow. Nothing more was to be seen of that disk, formerly so dazzling. The darkness was complete, and rendered even more so by the rays from the stars. It was that blackness in which the lunar nights are ensteeped, which lasts three hundred and four hours and a half at each point of the disk, a long night resulting from the equality of the translatory and rotary movements of the moon. The projectile, emerged in the conical shadow of the satellite, experienced the action of the solar rays no more than any of its invisible points. In the interior, the obscurity was complete. They could not see each other. Hence the necessity of dispelling the darkness. However desirous Barbicane might be to husband the gas, the reserve of which was small, he was obliged to ask from it a fictitious light, an expensive brilliancy which the sun then refused. "'Devil take the radiant orb!' exclaimed Michel Ardin, "'which forces us to expend gas, instead of giving us his rays gratuitously.' "'Do not let us accuse the sun,' said Nicol. "'It is not his fault, but that of the moon, which has come and placed herself like a screen between us and it.' "'It is the sun,' continued Michel. "'It is the moon,' retorted Nicol. An idle dispute, which Barbicane put an end to by saying, "'My friends, it is neither the fault of the sun nor of the moon. It is the fault of the projectile, which, instead of rigidly following its course, has awkwardly missed it. To be more just, it is the fault of that unfortunate meteor which has so deplorably altered our first direction.' "'Well,' replied Michel Ardin, "'as the matter is settled, let us have breakfast. After a whole night of watching, it is fair to build ourselves up a little.' This proposal, meeting with no contradiction, Michel prepared the repast in a few minutes. But they ate for eating's sake. They drank without toasts, without hurrahs. The bold travellers being borne away into gloomy space, without their accustomed cortege of rays, felt a vague uneasiness at their hearts. The strange shadow so dear to Victor Hugo's pen bound them on all sides. But they talked over the interminable night of three hundred and fifty-four hours and a half, nearly fifteen days, which the law of physics has imposed on the inhabitants of the moon. Barbicane gave his friends some explanation of the causes and the consequences of this curious phenomenon. "'Curious, indeed,' said they, "'for if each hemisphere of the moon is deprived of solar light for fifteen days, that above which we now float does not even enjoy during its long night any view of the earth so beautifully lit up.' In a word, she is no moon, applying this designation to our globe, but on one side of her disk. Now, if this were the case with the earth, if, for example, Europe never saw the moon, and she was only visible at the antipodes, 
Imagine to yourself the astonishment of a European on arriving in Australia. They would make the voyage for nothing but to see the moon, replied Michel. Very well, continued Barbicane. That astonishment is reserved for the Selenites who inhabit the face of the moon opposite to the earth, a face which is ever invisible to our countrymen of the terrestrial globe. And which we should have seen, added Nicol, if we had arrived here when the moon was new, that is to say, fifteen days later. I will add, to make amends, continued Barbicane, that the inhabitants of the visible face are singularly favoured by nature, to the detriment of their brethren on the invisible face. The latter, as you see, have dark nights of three hundred fifty-four hours, without one single ray to break the darkness. The other, on the contrary, when the sun which has given its light for fifteen days sinks below the horizon, see a splendid orb rise on the opposite horizon. It is the earth, which is thirteen times greater than that diminutive moon that we know, the earth which develops itself at a diameter of two degrees, and which sheds a light thirteen times greater than that qualified by atmospheric strata, the earth which only disappears at the moment when the sun reappears in its turn. "'Nicely worded,' said Michel, uh, "'slightly academical, perhaps.' It follows, then, continued Barbicane, without knitting his brows, that the visible face of the disk must be very agreeable to inhabit, since it always looks on either the sun when the moon is full, or on the earth when the moon is new. But, said Nicol, that advantage must be well compensated by the insupportable heat which the light brings with it. The inconvenience, in that respect, is the same for the two faces, for the earth's light is evidently deprived of heat. But the invisible face is still more searched by the heat than the visible face. I say that for you, Nicol, because Michel will probably not understand. Thank you, said Michel. Indeed, continued Barbicane, when the invisible face receives at the same time light and heat from the sun, it is because the moon is new, that is to say, she is situated between the sun and the earth. It follows, then, considering the position which she occupies in opposition when full, that she is nearer to the sun by twice her distance from the earth, and that distance may be estimated at the two-hundredth part of that which separates the sun from the earth, or in round numbers four hundred thousand miles. So that invisible face is so much nearer to the sun when she receives its rays. Quite right, replied Nicol. On the contrary, continued Barbicane. One moment, said Michel, interrupting his grave companion. What do you want? I ask to be allowed to continue the explanation. And why? To prove that I understand. <laughs> Get along with you, said Barbicane, smiling. On the contrary, said Michel, imitating the tone and gestures of the President, on the contrary, when the visible face of the moon is lit by the sun, it is because the moon is full, that is to say, opposite the sun with regard to the earth. 
the distance separating it from the radiant orb is then increased in round numbers to four hundred thousand miles and the heat which she receives must be a little less very well said exclaimed barbicane do you know michel that for an amateur you are intelligent yes replied michel coolly we are also on the boulevard des italiens barbicane gravely clasped the hand of his amiable companion and continued to enumerate the advantages reserved for the inhabitants of the visible face amongst others he mentioned eclipses of the sun which only take place on this side of the lunar disk since in order that they may take place it is necessary for the moon to be in opposition these eclipses caused by the interposition of the earth between the moon and the sun can last two hours during which time by reason of the rays refracted by its atmosphere the terrestrial globe can appear as nothing but a black point upon the sun so said dickel there is a hemisphere that invisible hemisphere which is very ill supplied very ill treated by nature never mind replied michel if we ever become selenites we will inhabit the visible face i like the light unless by any chance answered nicholl the atmosphere should be condensed on the other side as certain astronomers pretend that would be a consideration said michel breakfast over the observers returned to their post they tried to see through the darkened scuttles by extinguishing all light in the projectile but not a luminous spark made its way through the darkness one inexplicable fact preoccupied barbicane why having passed within such a short distance of the moon about twenty-five miles only why the projectile had not fallen if the speed had been enormous he could have understood that the fall would not have taken place but with a relatively moderate speed that resistance to the moon's attraction could not be explained was the projectile under some foreign influence did some kind of body retain it in the ether it was quite evident that it could never reach any point of the moon whither was it going was it going further from or nearing the disk was it being borne in that profound darkness through the infinity of space how could they learn how calculate in the midst of this night all these questions made barbicane uneasy but he could not solve them certainly the invisible orb was there perhaps only some few miles off but neither he nor his companions could see it if there was any noise on its surface they could not hear it air that medium of sound was wanting to transmit the groanings of that moon which the arabic legends call a man already half granite and still breathing one must allow that that was enough to aggravate the most patient observers it was just that unknown hemisphere which was stealing from their sight that face which fifteen days sooner or fifteen days later had been or would be splendidly illuminated by the solar rays was then being lost in utter darkness in fifteen days where would the projectile be who could say where would the chances of conflicting attractions have drawn it to 
The disappointment of the travellers, in the midst of this utter darkness, may be imagined. All observation of the lunar disk was impossible. The constellations alone claimed all their attention, and we must allow that the astronomers Fay, Charcotnach, and Seshi never found themselves in circumstances so favourable for their observation. Indeed, nothing could equal the splendour of this starry world, bathed in limpid ether. Its diamonds set in the heavenly vault sparkled magnificently. The eye took in the firmament from the southern cross to the north star, those two constellations which, in twelve thousand years, by reason of the succession of equinoxes, will resign their part of polar stars, the one to Canopus in the southern hemisphere, the other to Vega in the northern. Imagination loses itself in this sublime infinity, amidst which the projectile was gravitating, like a new star created by the hand of man. From a natural cause these constellations shone with a soft lustre. They did not twinkle, for there was no atmosphere which, by the intervention of its layers unequally dense and of different degrees of humidity, produces this scintillation. These stars were soft eyes, looking out into the dark night, amidst the silence of absolute space. Long did the travellers stand mute, watching the constellated firmament, upon which the moon, like a vast screen, made an enormous black hole. But at length a painful sensation drew them from their watchings. This was an intense cold, which soon covered the inside of the glass of the scuttles with a thick coating of ice. The sun was no longer warming the projectile with its direct rays, and thus it was losing the heat stored up in its walls by degrees. This heat was rapidly evaporating into space by radiation, and a considerably lower temperature was the result. The humidity of the interior was changed into ice upon contact with the glass, preventing all observation. Nicol consulted the thermometer and saw that it had fallen to seventeen degrees centigrade below zero, or one degree Fahrenheit, so that in spite of the many reasons for economizing, Barbicane, after having begged light from the gas, was also obliged to beg for heat. The projectile's low temperature was no longer endurable. Its tenants would have been frozen to death. "'Well,' observed Michel, "'we cannot reasonably complain of the monotony of our journey. What variety we have had, at least in temperature. Now we are blinded with light and saturated with heat, like the Indians of the Pampas, now plunged into profound darkness, amidst the cold like the Esquimaux of the North Pole. No, indeed, we have no right to complain.' nature does wonders in her honour but asked nicol what is the temperature outside exactly that of the planetary space replied barbicane then continued michel ardan would not this be the time to make the experiment which we dared not attempt when we were drowned in the sun's rays it is now or never replied barbicane for we are in a good position to verify the temperature of space, and see if Fourier or Puyé's calculations are exact. 
"'In any case it is cold,' said Michel. "'See, the steam of the interior is condensing on the glasses of the scuttles. "'If the fall continues, the vapour of our breath will fall in snow around us.' "'Let us prepare a thermometer,' said Barbicane. We may imagine that an ordinary thermometer would afford no result under the circumstances in which this instrument was to be exposed. The mercury would have been frozen in its ball, as below forty-two degrees below zero Fahrenheit it is no longer liquid. But Barbicane had furnished himself with a spirit thermometer on Warferden's system, which gives the minima of excessively low temperatures. Before beginning the experiment, this instrument was compared with an ordinary one, and then Barbicane prepared to use it. "'How shall we set about it?' asked Nicholl. "'Nothing is easier,' replied Michel Ardin, who was never at a loss. "'We open the scuttle rapidly, throw out the instrument. It follows the projectile with exemplary docility, and a quarter of an hour after, draw it in.' "'With the hand?' asked Barbicane. "'With the hand,' replied Michel. "'Well, then, my friend, do not expose yourself,' answered Barbicane. "'For the hand that you draw in again will be nothing but a stump, frozen and deformed by the frightful cold.' "'Really?' "'You will feel as if you had had a terrible burn, like that of iron at a white heat. For whether the heat leaves our bodies briskly or enters briskly, it is exactly the same thing.' Besides, I am not at all certain that the objects we have thrown out are still following us. "'Why not?' asked Nicholl. "'Because, if we are passing through an atmosphere of the slightest density, these objects will be retarded. Again, the darkness prevents our seeing if they still float around us. But in order not to expose ourselves to the loss of our thermometer, we will fasten it, and we can then more easily pull it back again.' Barbicane's advice was followed. Through the scuttle rapidly opened, Nicholl threw out the instrument which was held by a short cord, so that it might more easily be drawn up. The scuttle had not been opened more than a second, but that second had sufficed to let in a most intense cold. "'The devil!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. "'It's cold enough to freeze a white bear!' Barbicane waited until half an hour had elapsed, which was more than time enough to allow the instrument to fall to the level of the surrounding temperature. Then it was rapidly pulled in. Barbicane calculated the quantity of spirits of wine overflowed into the little phial soldered to the lower part of the instrument, and said, A hundred and forty degrees centigrade below zero, or minus two hundred and eighteen degrees Fahrenheit. Monsieur Poulet was right and Fourier wrong. That was the undoubted temperature of the starry space. Such is, perhaps, that of the lunar continents, when the orb of night has lost by radiation all the heat which fifteen days of sun have poured into her. End of chapter.